When I think of tackiness, I think of the Balboa family, and I think very specifically of the house that they bought when they got rich. I'm talking about Rocky Balboa and Adrian. Yo, Adrian. So it's Rocky three or Rocky four. They finally get some money. And what do they do? They buy this marble and gold encrusted monstrosity of a house. Uh, more money than taste. That obviously is sort of the four word equation of tackiness. Of course, we still love Rocky. I mean, he didn't know. Worked okay in a Philadelphia row house. Why wouldn't it, you know, work at 10 times the amount of square feet? Anyway, we're going to talk about tackiness today. That's just my take, but I'm not the expert. The experts are coming up after the news. That's Creed, for you NPR listeners who are kind of racking your brain for this uncannily familiar sound that you're hearing. Now, most of you have no idea who Creed is, but we're going to explain certain things to you that you don't understand today, all under the umbrella of tackiness. There probably are some fairly tacky umbrellas that one could acquire. Um, so, before we, I introduce our guests, I, I want to say that tackiness, although it feels like a relatively new concept, kind of isn't really. I've been watching lately on HBO, The Gilded Age, uh, which is, you know, Julian Fellows' latest evocation of the past, in this case, the American past. And, and it is entirely obsessed with tackiness. Uh, the entire through line of the series is this kind of Arivist family, the Russells, who've built this tacky house, this McMansion, really, of kind of Versailles-like proportions. Amidst all this old money, Christine Baranski, wonderful as usual, plays this kind of old money person named Agnes von Rhein, who's constantly obsessing about attempts by these parvenus to climb the ladder. And everything they do and everything they own is implicitly tacky. It's too much. It's more money than taste. And that seems to me, to me to be a big part of the notion of tackiness. Interestingly, it's all set, like, I don't know, around 1880, which is also right around the time that the word tacky acquired its current meaning. And, and that may not be a coincidence. Uh, the, the arrival of Americans with new money and not necessarily any familiarity with the complicated mores that went along with money in old society, uh, that may have coincided with you should pardon the expression, the need for a word like tacky. Anyway, I'll stop opining. I'm the, and I'm not the one who wrote the book called Tacky, Love Letters to the Worst Culture We Have to Offer. That would be Rax King, our guest. All the way through the show, we're also going to be uh, adding a few more guests uh, as we move along here. Towards the end, we will explore the indisputably tacky taste of dictators. Dictators, the minute they get... <laughs> but especially if they're dictators over a really impoverished population, there's just really almost an imperative that you have to 
build, you know, an Alpine-style chateau in Haiti or something. Um, anyway, we'll come to that. But Rax King is, Rax King is here with us, uh, also co-host of the podcast Low Culture Boil. So, uh, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. So your book is kind of bracketed by two. We should say the book is 14 pieces. Uh, They are both cultural observation and memoir. Um, It's kind of bracketed, actually, by two musical observations. One of them is Creed, whom we just heard, and the other is the recently departed uh, Meatloaf. And and I don't know enough about Creed to know whether they're talking or why they're, why they're talking, but I kind of get why Meatloaf is. Uh, and obviously, you know, say nothing but good about the dead, but uh, explain why Meatloaf is the end of your book. Uh, well, that is one of the essays that uh, I believe it's called It's Time to Let Meatloaf Into Your Embarrassing Little Heart. <laughs> and uh, it was previously published at Electric Literature. And uh, it's one of the first essays in the collection that I wrote the the one that immediately precedes it the one about guy fieri is the first and i believe the meatloaf one is the second and uh you know as i'm writing these essays and working my way through my own thinking it does evolve a bit but the idea that someone as as bombastic and as straightforwardly emotive as meatloaf did tend to get considered tacky. I mean, people thought of him as just too over the top, too much, too dorky. And uh, that really stuck with me that this pure expression of emotion, that was enough to make something tacky. Right. Well, tackiness, I think you would agree that tackiness almost needs snobbery in, in order to exist. I mean, if an ostentatious McMansion falls in the forest and there's nobody to look down their noses at it, <laughs> did it even make a noise, right? Don't you, I mean, nothing would be tacky if there weren't judgmental people. Yeah, it's definitely in the eye of the beholder, but uh, I think it's not really so much in the eye of any individual beholder. I've, that, I've come around on that because throughout my book, I talk a lot about... Uh, various people who have pointed out my own bad taste to me. And I, you know, in my own memory, of course, these individual people take on a bit of significance. But I think that uh, it's got to be in the culture somewhere for people to even want to make these judgments. They have to be picking it up from somewhere. Yeah, I think it comes from a lot of different sources. I'll give you an example that very much predates the issuance of your book, cat. This is going to be a two. So uh, this goes back to 1977. Um, this is uh, Morley Safer on 60 Minutes. He is interviewing the publisher of Hustler, uh, Larry Flint. What we tend to forget is that the newsstand is the poor man's art museum. The rich and the privileged have the erotic art museums, and Hustler really appeals to blue collar America. It's as commonplace in America as apple pie. You say that, and you make a very convincing case, but in fact, aren't you really just trying to put a gloss on what is a very tacky business? I have to tell you, Rax, that, that's, I, the minute we decided to do this show, I thought about that moment. It's stuck in my head since 1977. Um, but this, there's sort of some of your thinkings in the book, not that you would necessarily uh, exalt Larry Flint, but he's making an interesting point, right, that um, the, the taste exists across a um, socioeconomic strata. There's some things that rich people keep for them, keep for themselves. There are some things that other people really, really enjoy, whether rich people like it or not. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one reason that Larry Flint is a really good example here, actually, I, I do have my own issues with him, <laughs> but we all do remember him as a champion of First Amendment rights. And I think one reason that he was so infamous for exactly this reason, for being tacky and for spreading tackiness everywhere. I mean, if if people don't know, he grew up dirt, dirt, poor. And so as he be, as he ascends in the culture and as he's making his money and as his brand is gaining recognition, I think it must have been infuriating for people that this poor man was making a fortune off of what what was described in that clip as a very tacky business. It wasn't like he had bootstrapped his way into money and power respectably. He was a pornographer. That was so distasteful in its own right. And I, I have to say, I don't hate that. Like I, I like somebody taking the, uh, the absolute depths of poor taste and making their fortune on it unapologetically. Right. I mean, I th- think there's a sense in your book, too, whether you're whatever you're writing about, really, um, that, you know, well, to look at it from the other end of the spectrum, the kind of snobbery that it, snobbish energy it takes to kind of maintain judgments uh, and, and maybe hold some kind of invisible and highly mythical line against the onslaught of poor taste and tackiness. That takes a lot of energy, whereas there's a sense in your book that just enjoying tacky stuff uh, is its opposite, right? It is a, it's something that can recharge you. Yeah, and I do feel that way. And uh, I want to be clear that I don't think it's bad to have critiques of anything. I think that it's important to develop your subjective taste and to, to really think about why you like the things that you like. But at the same time, if you've got 30 people telling you that, for example, the band Creed is irreparably tacky <laughs> and you can't help but love their music, you you experience it on a physical, joyful level before you hear those criticisms, I think that is also worth paying tribute to. I think it's important to ask why we like the things we like, but I also think it's important to honor the experience of really liking something and of liking it immediately before you know all the rules. So, you know, we do a weekly cultural roundtable here called The Nose on Fridays. And, you know, most of our panelists kind of come out of a similar background and have sort of a similar similar kind of, I don't know, liberal arts uh, approach to to the stuff that we talk about. But there are some exceptions. Uh, and, and one of them we're about to hear from, Kat, this will be A1. Uh, you're about to hear from somebody who I think of as kind of the John Waters uh, of Connecticut, Jacques Lamar. You know, I think one person's tackiness is another person's treasure. Uh, I generally love things that a lot of people would consider to be tacky. Um, to me, I think what's being tacky is being ill-mannered um, and not being kind to other people. Uh, generally, I find that behavior tacky. But uh, other than that, bring me your plastic slip covers and your lava lamps uh, and... and um, you know, I, I veer towards the, the campy fun side of life. So um, bring on the tacky. Just behave well while you're doing it. <laughs> I'll just let you react to that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I I guess I say that as somebody also not from that, uh, that academic researcher background. You know, I'm an ex-stripper. That's what informed my taste when I was 19, 20 years old. I, I didn't have the chance, really to develop on the appropriate, the so-called appropriate lines. I like 
a plastic slip cover. It keeps my sofa clean. Like so much of the stuff that gets derided as tacky is considered that because it's like low rent. People don't like plastic slip covers because they associate them with like poor people's houses or foreign people's houses. And in reality, like there is nothing wrong with wanting to have a clean sofa. <laughs> right. There's also, you know, I mean, you and I are very, very different generations. I'm like super old. So, um, <laughs> and there's a way, even though you are not super old, there are some of the examples in your book I think are kind of aging out of their tacky status. I mean, what's tacky, what's tacky today uh, is probably a little bit, more curated and nostalgically understood 10 years out. So if Degrassi is taxi, tacky or Hot Topic is tacky at a given moment, it's because somebody feels assaulted by the immediacy of it, right? You just, you can't get away from it and you don't like it uh, and it's not your taste and so it's tacky. But, you know, shopping malls, which you spend uh, an, an essay on, I don't know. They are looked at, I think, in a, sort of a different way. They're, they are kind of aging into nostalgia. And so is some of this other stuff, would you say? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I uh, if, if you look back even farther, like decades and decades ago, it used to be considered tacky to work in the theater. You know, it used to be like, that's what low rent people did. <laughs> or it used to be considered tacky to read novels. That's what you did when you didn't have like acceptable literary taste. And so on a long enough timeline, just about anything that has a bad reputation will have the chance to heal itself. And I think that uh, may maybe as a result of the internet with so much more knowledge and cultural criticism available at the click of a mouse, like the timeline is probably getting shorter. And I, I remember that uh, when I wrote my essay about Guy Fieri, he still had that reputation as a corny cheese ball who like serious people didn't like. That's really changed. Now people see him as still corny, but in a fun way and in a cool uncle way. Everybody thinks of him as the the funny, avuncular guy who's always giving a lot of money to charity. That's his reputation now. And I'm perfectly happy for, like, if every single essay in my book ends up being about something that people like now, that's perfect for me. I'm happy with that. <laughs> well, some of it also is achieving some ironic distance from your own initial presentation. I would say I don't I'm not an expert in Guy Fieri, but it seems to me at a certain point he made it clear that he got the joke, right? Yeah, I think uh, at, at some point a couple years back. No, it was 2021, the beginning of 2021. And there was that photo of Bernie Sanders that went viral. He was sitting in the chair with his his hands folded over his chest, like looking kind of bored. And Guy Fieri tweeted a photoshopped image of him and his Camaro with that Bernie Sanders in the passenger seat. And that for me was the moment when I was like, okay, he has gotten the joke for a while. He knows who's uh, watching him ironically now. And he's happy to have that audience, which is fine by me. So I want to give you a chance to kind of riff a little bit off of one of the things that you devote uh, some pages to. And this would be another thing that, once again, generally, generationally, I have no relationship to. Uh, and that would be Josie and the Pussycats. Just to sort of set this up. Uh, so, Kat, this is a three. Let's hear uh, a little bit of Pretend to be Nice. Well, he looks at me with those innocent eyes and says it looks like you're wearing some kind of disguise because your hair sticks up, your shoes are
don't know. I kind of like that, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's a banger. People yeah. hated that movie when it came out. So say more about that. Say more about sort of how you navigated the hatred that people felt for it and the love that, that you entertained for it. So when this movie came out, uh, it's it's a live action take on the, the 70s cartoon, the, the comic strip, Josie and the Pussycats. You know, it's one of the Archie comics. And then they released this live action movie, uh, Josie and the Pussycats, in, I believe, 2001. So I would have been 10 years old. And just the exact perfect age to watch a really hyped up live action take on a comic strip. You know, I loved cartoons. I loved bright colors. I was still a kid. I had a kid's taste. And uh, for whatever reason, that movie really stuck with me. You know, it, it had a cast of, uh, I guess, the, the era's hot women. You know, every era has its own hot women. And uh <laughs> At the time, I'm watching this stuff, and I don't even have any developed sense of my own sexuality, but I'm like, oh, okay, hot women, like, check, I'm on board. And uh, what I remember, you know, as a kid, you barely pay attention to things like movie reviews. What you care about is whether your friends like a movie or not. But I do remember there being scathing reviews of this movie all about how it's too stupid for words. The performances are bad. The satire falls flat. And uh, even at the time watching this movie, all I could think was, this is just a fun movie. Like, if you don't think it's fun, fine. But uh, I, I still believe that it really resists that level of critical treatment. I think that it's one of those things that if you like it, it's going to be mostly on an aesthetic level. I agree that the satire and the script is kind of clunky, but that doesn't make it any less fun to watch. And, uh, you know, I'm far, I'm not one to say that critics shouldn't criticize again, but at the same time, it, it is striking to me that there were almost no dissenting opinions at the time. Like people <laughs> almost got together and agreed to hate this movie. So, you know, I'm about to walk us over into a field of tripwires, and we won't stay there <laughs> for very long. But but I think it's worth noting that, you know, I, I there's a way in which certain kind that this a lot of this conversation conversation takes place within a kind of white sphere. There's a, you know, if you look at sort of who's immune to criticism of tackiness, I would say it's hip hop and hip hop adjacent cultures from the drop that their decision was to kind of mock those standards, to be ostentatious, to to just be drenched in bling to, you know, to just, ex- in fact, sort of flaunt and flout and, and say, I, we're not paying any attention to the kinds of, you know, old money standards that, that anybody might have set up, set up for somebody else. And I think it even extends to, I don't know, Bruno Mars, you know, I mean, you know, strawberry champagne on ice sounds kind of disgusting and tacky. <laughs> but I think Bruno knows that, too. I think that's sort of the joke of the song, right? Yeah, and I think that uh, it even extends beyond hip-hop stars. Like, I think that around the the era of hip-hop that I see you talking about, that's a time that I remember that the fashion among uh, Black women was long nails, long fake nails, and among white women, that was considered impossibly tacky. If you were a white woman with long fake nails, you were breaking an aesthetic rule. And I can't speak to what the rules are in the black community. I mean, I have to figure that every community has its own rules, but I do think it's interesting that now, again, on on a long enough timeline, everything shifts. And now 
it is totally permissible and stylish for white women to have the long fake nails. It's It looks great on Instagram. You always see their pictures of it. And there's been almost no wider acknowledgement among the white women who do this that we kind of ripped it off, like the long fake nails, the big hoop earrings. We We took this from people who were getting a lot of crap for it. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's also... A very long-running story, the white appropriation of black styles and and slang and music and everything, you know, and, and we do it unapologetically. And you're right. We do it 10 minutes after we've been, you know, maybe looking down our noses at it. So, um, all right. So let's take a little break here. Rax King is going to stay with us. Uh, her book is Tacky, Love Letters to the Worst Culture We Have to Offer. We'll be back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. Out here in Rhode Island, we those, when we stop, our chrome keeps spinning. I was born and raised a Guido. It's just a lifestyle. It's being Italian. It's representing um, family, friends, tan and gel, everything. I got a tan bed in my place. That's how serious I am about being a Guido and living up to that lifestyle. My tagline is, I'm your girl's favorite DJ. What? <laughs> All right, we are about to take a trip, not only to the Jersey Shore, uh, not only, but but also into the world of reality television. Uh, here with us uh, is Rax King, author of Tacky Love Letters to the Worst Culture We Have to Offer, which includes an essay about Jersey Shore. And Brian Moylan, writer, reality TV show recapper, and author of New Times New York Times bestseller The Housewives: The Real Story Behind the Real Housewives. So, Brian, uh, first of all, welcome to our conversation. And you know, maybe just we should begin by talking about the state of mind in which people watch these kinds of shows. I'd like to hear both you and Rax talk about this, but it feels like whether it's Jersey Shore or Real Housewives or Come to It, Tiger King, there seems to be a con- combination of both judgment and delight in the way that people watch this stuff. I mean, they're probably not dressed like Snooki in the situation in their real lives, uh, but they're sort of judging it and reveling in it at the same time. Can you say more about that? 
Well, I talk in my book about how I believe that, especially with The Real Housewives, there are sincere fans and ironic fans. And there are those fans who are watching it and saying, oh, my God, I want to be just like these women. I would be a great Real Housewife. I want to live exactly like this. And there are also fans watching saying, oh, my God, can you believe these women? They're so crazy. I'd never want to be like that. And so and I think we all operate on different ends of the spectrum, you know, whereas you can be like, oh, I don't want to be like Snooki, but also I do want to go out to the club and have fun. And she looks like she's having fun. So I think that there's a level of irony and a level of sincerity that most of us have as a sort of sliding scale. Yeah, Rex, uh, how about you? Just, I mean, as I say, you devote a chapter to Jersey Shore. Say a little bit about your relationship with that. Yeah, I love me some Jersey Shore. Um, (laughs) I think that uh, regardless of the form that your appreciation takes, whether it's ironic or sincere, a big part of the appeal of reality TV is that you are ostensibly watching real people make real decisions and you can put yourself in their place a bit. You can say to yourself, oh, I would never have said that to Sammy at the club or, you know, I agree with the decision to, you know, you're it's, it's almost a choose your own adventure that you're not actually participating in. And with Jersey Shore, I mean, I did not watch a whole lot of reality TV at the time that that show came out, but I started watching Jersey Shore religiously with my father. And that was the form that our conversations took. You know, can you believe that Mike said this to Polly? Can you believe that they lied about this? It was all about reacting to the human events on screen, which in Jersey Shore were often pretty crazy human events, and you react to them as a human in your own right. You make decisions, you decide how you feel about what you've just seen and what you would do in their shoes. I, I, you know, Rex, I also wonder about the kind of approachability of it all, too, that, you know, we've lived through decades and generations of, you know, of kind of on, on-screen divinities, you know, from Rita Hayworth to Michelle Pfeiffer. Most of us are never going to look like that. We're never going to kind of live like that either. There's a way in which these shows introduce us to celebrities. Uh, there's, there's a smaller gap between us and them. Yeah, and I think one thing that's interesting about that is that if you read a book about you know, the behavior of people in old Hollywood, they were just as wild and out of control as reality show celebrities now. Like you maybe don't know it because we tend to hold them in such high regard as the the classic creators of cinema, but they were wilding out. And uh, so I think that it's kind of nice for us who hold these figures in such high regard to then turn around and watch some Real Housewives throwing wine at each other, screaming at each other, (laughs) and, yeah, bringing it back down to a plane of greater approachability, even though, in real life, these people's behavior is not that far off the mark from each other. Right. The old stars just had some Josh Brolin-type character running around, cleaning up their messes for them. Uh, Right. I would like to correct a misconception. Yes, okay. Uh, Wine has only been thrown on The Real Housewives (laughs) once. And everyone says, oh, The Real Housewives is throwing wine. It only happened once, people. It's like saying, you know, Jersey Shore's about Snooki getting punched in the face when that only happened once. But (laughs) I, I think that, you know, to the point of what you were saying, 
Um, you know, the, the idea of reality and the promise of it is that it could happen to any of us. Like any of us could be plucked out of obscurity and become famous for being a real housewife or being on the Jersey Shore. And I think that also speaks to, you know, what you and your father were going through is is there's that vicarious thrill of, you know, I can't be behave like Snooki in my real life, but I can watch her behave like how I want to behave. And that's a sort of kind of wish fulfillment, especially with the housewives where they are, you know, presented as aspirational figures of wealth and they have great families and they have great jobs and whatever. And so you can, part of the promise is seeing yourself in that milieu, as it were. Um, yeah, let's go to B1 next, Kat. So just for those of you, this is a public radio audience, uh, Rax and Brian. So some of them may have never even heard or seen The Real Housewives. So uh, just to help you people out, this will be Luann and Alex. And I believe they'll be uh, the Real Housewives of New York. I believe they will be having a confrontation. I thought this was going to be a pleasant meeting where we're going to have a nice little cappuccino. And you were going to say, I'm sorry, I It shows your own delusion. You came after me in the house. I was sitting there having a lovely moment with the ladies. And you came in in your Herman Munster shoes. Um, they're, they're Louis Vuitton shoes, you know? Well, yeah, even Louis Vuitton makes mistakes. Um, <laughs> oh, that is so rude. Well, you know. You know, when, Just because you have this, I don't, you know. This is why I've never approached you before. This is it. So, uh, yeah, Brian, I mean, there's so many things that people probably watch for. But in a way, I don't know, you could watch the, you know, Joel Cohen's reframing of Macbeth or you could watch Real Housewives. You might be seeing kind of similar dynamics. It's it's all kind of storytelling, too, uh, about ambition and, and animosity. Yeah. And I would like to point out that Luann de la Seps, like myself, is a native of the great state of Connecticut, so um, thank you for that, Connecticut. But um, yeah, I think what's interesting about, you know, we talk about tackiness and we talk about people judging these housewives or Jersey Shore or whomever for being tacky, for having these crazy over the top clothes, over the ho top houses. But also the housewives are kind of judging each other based on kind of the same things. And so here we hear Luann being like, oh, you know, your shoes that you think are great are actually tacky. And and so the you know, there's sort of grades of judgment happening between the audience, between the cast members and between, you know, the audience siding with different women on their different views of what may or may not be tacky. All right. So, you know, I said that there were people within this show, whether they're panelists on the nose or something else, as you're about to see, uh, who depart maybe from the consensus view about. I don't know, the crown or something. Why? <laughs> so, so one of the people who wonders, well, why are we talking about the crown, uh, I would assume anyway, is the wonderful Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer. Uh, here's Kat on tackiness and reality TV. I understand why most would perceive reality TV as tacky, but I think that it's one of the most honest expressions of human nature that we could easily observe. So the thing that makes reality TV so great is that it's all based on reaction. And the biggest reaction possible is encouraged, if not manipulated into existence. It's the purest form of human instinct. And it allows us to see how scenarios would play out if we acted on every impulse we have with little to no consequence. One standout example of this is close to my heart. 
This is from season two of Bad Girls Club. It's an iconic moment that arises when Tanisha reaches her breaking point after being kept up all night and uh, waking up to a filthy house. So I relate to this because I am a neat freak and I am the type of person who tries to impose a quiet after 10 p.m. rule on my 21-year-old upstairs neighbor, which she does not adhere to. Um, So I really relate to Tanisha in this. Let's hear it. It's so nasty in this house. You know what? Yeah. I'm tired of y'all bitches in this house. Y'all gonna make me lose my mind, y'all. Where's the box? Tired of all of y'all. Get up. Get the hell up. Get up. Get up. Clean the house. Clean it up. I'm tired of this. I can honestly say that that is exactly how I would react to these scenarios if I was in some weird, like, Stanford prison experiment with unlimited alcohol and my actions didn't have a domino effect on every other aspect of my life. And that's what I'm saying. I think that everyone, if they give it a chance, can admit that they identify with at least one reality TV star. So while it may be tacky and over the top, whatever, the core of it is based in truth, and I encourage everyone to watch with an open mind and remember that crazy has no limit when you stop lying to yourself. We're all tacky, and that's just the way it is. So, Rex King, I, I have an intuition that you and Cat Pastor would get along really great if you uh, ever had a chance to hang out together. But, but just maybe react to where we are so far in this conversation about reality TV. Yeah, I mean, uh, earlier Brian used the term wish fulfillment to describe the, uh, the interactive nature of reality TV fandom. And I think that, especially in this case, that hits the nail right on the head. Because listening to that clip, I can think of so many times that I've been kept awake by my noisy upstairs neighbors, or like I live right over a recording studio. And sometimes there is bass shattering my walls at like one in the morning. And the number of times I have wanted to proverbially go downstairs with a couple of pots and pans and just bang them in their faces just to just because it's my desire. You know, you get to see these desires that you have fulfilled and fulfilled like in their highest degree, because that seems like a pretty extreme reaction to being woken up by a bunch of noise. But I do think we all have some version of that reaction when we're inconvenienced or when someone's stepping on our toes or whatever. And uh, so many reality TV shows allow us to see our reactions, our internal reactions writ large. And I think that's part of what makes it so satisfying. Yeah. You know, what I wonder here, Brian, is let's be honest. We've now had a genuinely tacky U.S. president. I mean, the, the, the Trump <laughs> From reality television. From reality <laughs> television. You know, in fact, Celebrity Apprentice was often populated by people who'd become famous on other <laughs> reality TV shows. Uh, you know, yeah, we've had a genuinely tacky president who really thinks like a lot of gold chandeliers and gold escalators and stuff. That that's really looks great, you know. And John Waters' movies are now shown unedited on broadcast television. Not all of them, but some of them. And I don't know, Bethany Frankel's had a bigger impact on the culture than Joyce Carol Oates probably over the last 20 years. So I don't know. I mean, is there even enough uh, of a, dis- a discernment between mainstream culture and tacky culture anymore? Or, or is tacky culture and culture, are, are those two Venn circles starting to overlap an awful lot? Well, I I think that they are sort of overlapping a lot, but I think we see the same things with Donald Trump that we see with reality fans, like that there are people who sincerely think that's what rich people look like and people who think, 
oh, this is so tacky. And so I, I think that, you know, what is tacky for one person isn't tacky for everybody. But I do think that we have gotten to a place where we accept tackiness a bit more in the mainstream, especially like we were talking about these reality stars whose behavior some might call tacky, but we are secretly wishing we could behave like that too. And that's the release that, that we're looking for. And so I think some of of the embrace of tackiness has to do with giving ourselves the permission to do the things that we want to do that some part of society isn't allowing us to. Right. So, and and this is a tension, I think, Rax, that you explore. You talk about waving goodbye to, uh, to sincerity. There's a way in which you wonder if this would be as much fun if there wasn't somebody trying to make it a, a quote-unquote guilty pleasure. Yeah, I think... Uh... I mean, for as long as there is taste, period, like for as long as not everybody in the whole world is reading 100% of the same books, listening to 100% of the same music, etc., there are going to be pieces of literature and music and whatnot that run afoul of that taste. There's always going to be a central, acceptable taste, and there will always be things that fall outside of it. At the same time, I do think that if nothing else, we are able to get tacky with uh, greater freedom, maybe just because, you know, in, in the year 2000, reality TV was probably limited to the real world. I forget exactly what year it started, but that's generally considered to be the beginning of reality TV's supremacy over the TV landscape. Now it's everywhere. Even if you don't watch it yourself, somebody in your life does. And, you know, you can say whatever comes into your head about reality TV and how tacky it is, but more people are going to disagree with you, I think. Yeah, I, I wonder also if one of the things that reality TV does, Brian, is, well, I don't know if I can, I'm sharing secrets out of school, but uh, I, w- I was told that a producer- Do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, okay, I'll just say, put this this way. I was told that a producer in reality tele- television once described Bethany Frankel as someone with no boundaries whatsoever. So, you know, I mean, if she's got a gynecological appointment, sure, let's bring the cameras there. Um, and, and, and Brian, I do feel as though one of the things that reality television does is erode that boundary between what is public and what is private. Um, and, and that's some of the fun of it, right? As we walk around in our neighborhoods, we'd kind of like to know what our neighbors are up to, or, or maybe we wouldn't. No, I, I think that's true. And we've seen that exacerbated, I think, partially due to reality television uh, by social media, where, you know, everything is is for public consumption. And it's interesting now, you know, even on Real Housewives in New Jersey, Teresa Giudice is talking about whether or not her new fiance should have to address things from his past. And she says, oh, he didn't sign up for this. And it's like, well, he's dating you. So maybe he did sign up for it. And so, you know, just like in the public sphere where we're having debates about what is appropriate and what is not appropriate um, in terms of uh, privacy, they're having the same conversations on reality television. It's just kind of 
so much larger. But I think what's really interesting is we see this a lot in what I like to call late stage housewifery, which is that all fights on the show are kind of about the show. And so a, a lot of it is is negotiating the women negotiating how much they want to share and the other women either being resentful that they're not sharing enough or thinking that they're oversharing or, you know, setting boundaries about what is on limits. You know, we always hear the housewives say like, oh, kids are off limits. But I mean, at some point, some people's kids become within the limits, too. So it, it's really getting into kind of a what I find a very fascinating gray area about where people draw their lines. All right. So uh, we've been uh, talking to Rax King. Her book is Tacky, Love Letters uh, to the Worst Culture We Have to Offer. Uh, it's a, a lot of fun and I recommend it, particularly people from that generation. There's so much uh, about the, all the things that you love. Brian Moylan is a writer, reality TV show recapper and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Housewives, The Real Story Behind The Real Housewives. Uh, and we will take a little break. We will come back. We will talk to you about dictators' houses and how they fit into the tackiness equation. we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. All right, today's technical producer and everyday's technical producer is Kat Pastor. You already met her. Uh, the producer of this episode is our senior producer, Lily Tyson. Uh, and we are going to conclude. We're going to take a little bit of a swerve here, although not really. Uh, we're going to talk to Peter York, a journalist and author of Dictator Style, Lifestyles of the World's Most Colorful Despots, uh, among other um, books. And uh, yes, he has written about Dictator Chic, and he's even linked this to our first family once removed, the aforementioned Trumps. So first of all, Peter York, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. So it's great to be here. So the theme is tackiness. Uh, explain how you, well, I mean, Lily, Lily Tyson was the one who figured out we should invite you, but uh, explain why you're happy to be invited to talk about tackiness. Well, I've always been fascinated by the class aspect, frankly, of aesthetics. Why some people think something looks great and some people think something looks really tacky. And I exercise that in a, in a book about dictators because dictators who have all the money in the world, literally, because they're robbing their countries blind and they build huge houses which are by the lights of snobs, English snobs like me, really terrible. <laughs> and it's, it's gruesomely fascinating to think, why are they so terrible? 
Right, and and I I we want I want to go over some of your uh, dictator chic rules as we go along here. But I think the first point we have to make, at least my intuition here, Peter, is that it's almost as if the more impoverished and downtrodden the trodden the population is, the more there's an imperative to build you know just ridiculously ostentatious and opulent homes. You know, I mean, Duvalier had to have you know like five different mansions in Haiti, including like an alpine chalet style. It, there's sort of an implicit promise that at some point the peasants will get the upper hand and they're going to tear the hinges off the doors and rip everything apart. But but. But why would why would it be that that people provide? I mean, Ch- you know, Ceausescu presided over a very very poor Romania. Why why in those countries do you have people doing that? Well, if you've got a very poor country with very traditional aspirations, very condi- traditional images in their heads, and you want to say that your rule is legitimate because you're wonderful, you're practically a god, then you have to have a house which says um, to um, a whole lot of people like that, a whole lot of peasants, I am a person of godlike wealth and power, and you can tell this from the amount of gold in my house, (laughs) the amount of marble, the amount of mirrors, the scale of the chandeliers, all that stuff, because it works. Right. And it, it was very fascinating uh, yes. to be asked <laughs> rather later by an American magazine to uh, say whether um, um, the last president fitted into that um, scope, you know, to look at the, to- the Trump Tower and Mar-a-Lago and say, did it fit into dictator style? And of course it does, straight down the line. And in that sense, it's quite un-American. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, But there's also a sense, whether it's Trump or or some of the dictators that you're talking about, that in whatever coup which brought them to power, they also probably overthrew a ruling class that was a little bit older, had a little bit more connection to what the the standards and mores and tastes of the society was. So there's sort of a a middle finger being shoved at those group of people that you've displaced. But yeah, you should say a little bit about just gold. It's really not just Trump who's crazy about this. You know, Yanukovych, uh, for example, uh, formerly, formerly the leader of Ukraine, very much in the world conversation right now, lived, I think you said, in a blizzard of gold. Yes. Gold is a very, very big statement, and it works for practically everybody. You know, it says, I'm really rich. Do you remember when Trump said, I'm really rich, 10 billion? He hasn't got 1 billion, <laughs> but he he said that. And his way of signaling that in Trump Tower, signaling that in Mar-a-Lago, is another blizzard of gold. There's gold on everything. So there's also self-mythologizing is is cool and okay in this context. We tend to uh, maybe look down on it or try to avoid it, um, ideally in our own lives and our conduct with other people. But you know, for example, gigantic paintings of yourself, which I think Trump also had. But you you talk about yes. Mar- Marcos and Ceausescu. Talk a little bit about about that whole thing. Well. Um, what you're doing in a very crude way is um, mythologize, self-mythologizing. I mean, high, um, established royal families did it. 
great portraits by great artists in great real gilt frames. Remember, for every bit of machine gilt in a tacky place, there's real gold leaf gilt in an old palace. So gold isn't just the preserve of new tacky people. But anyway, self-mythologizing is a long and self-legitimizing of saying that your family's existed forever. All these are, they, um, uh, are the, the propaganda methodology of dictators. And because, as we can see, if, if anybody had looked seriously at Trump's apartment in 2015, they would know that he was a person who would have no respect for the liberal democracy checks and balances because that was a dictator's home. <laughs> so uh, when we talk about self-mythologizing, I think we should I should get you to talk about maybe the the ultimate tacky example, and that would be the president of Tur- Turkmenistan, uh, President Niyazov. Uh, talk about his statue of himself. Well, it's central, and it's gold, and uh, there's nothing else there, so to speak. You know, it is another... A desperately poor country. It's amazing um, 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 how he's persisted. And you think, won't the great sweep of history take it all away? But not yet. Right. We should say this is a rotating statue so that, you know, everybody yeah. everybody has it the opportunity. It faces every which way. <laughs> it's there for everyone all the time. So no, nobody should be deprived of the opportunity to, to see Nobody him. should be deprived of the opportunity. It's, it's like something on the top of a cake, something on the top of a musical <laughs> box. In but, that sense, it's like hyper-tacky. Right. So we've got time for maybe one more rule. Uh, maybe uh, heroic beasts, wildly macho creatures like uh, yes. lions and eagles. Say a few words about that. You, you don't really understand art collecting. So you have yourself and you have symbols <laughs> of yourself as an alpha male because overwhelmingly dictators are men. And so you want beasts, preferably made of solid gold with jeweled eyes, who represent your alpha maleness. So you'll have lions and tigers and eagles. Beasts which are fantastically aggressive, but rather good looking. <laughs> we should so say. You want to think. Look, Ceausescu, for instance, was a short ass. Many of these people were not particularly blessed. You know, they they weren't great lookers, <laughs> but they and, and they probably weren't most of them great men of um, great men of action. They like to style themselves in that way. So having the instant associations of heroic beasts sort of gets you there in a sort of testosterone-ish way. Right. And not to pound the Trump uh, analogies to death, but he did outsource that to his two sons, Don Jr. and Eric, who had lots of pictures of themselves and poor, you know, leopards, uh, you know, rolled up into little balls about to be taken home. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's sort of all there. I want to just close just because we are we all miss him. I knew him a little bit uh, with a line that you used from uh, P.J. O'Rourke, who said, if a reason to invade Iraq was wanted, felony interior decorating would have done, referring to Saddam and his chandeliers and other tacky It was women. great. 
<laughs> he was, was great. He, he was great. All right. Well, listen, uh, Peter York, so great to talk to you. We are out of time. Uh, but uh, Peter York's book is Dictator Style, Lifestyles of the World's Most Colorful Despots. I hope you've enjoyed our very tacky, tacky show. We'll be back to just stellar good taste tomorrow. 